Paris. Where? There. What, behind the rabbit? It is the rabbit. You silly sod. What? You guys all worked up. Well, that's no ordinary rabbit. Oh. That's the most foul, cruel and bad-tempered rodent you ever set eyes on. You tit. I saw my arm and I was so scared. Look, that rabbit's got a vicious street a mile wide. It's a killer. Get stuck. He'll do you a, a treat, mate. Oh, oh yeah? Manky Scott's git. I'm warning you. What's he do? Nibble your bum? He's got huge, sharp... He can leap about. Look at the bones. Go on, boys. Chop his head off. Right, silly little beater. One rabbit suit coming right up. Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. Uh, this is your host, James Cadd, and with me is our special co-host, Bill Muir, Bill from Queens, and we are doing neo-noir until it kills us. Billy, are you there, sir? Oh yeah, I'm still here, Jimmy. Absolutely. I, I was doped up a little bit before. You know, they slipped me a Mickey, but... Uh, at, the, at the whorehouse? <laughs> that's right. That's right. The madam. You know, after I punched her in the face. You'll be yeah. sorry, Marlo. And then you had to run in with Eddie Moss. <laughs> That's right. Sylvester Stallone and, you know, the loan shark he worked for in Rocky beat me up. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Oliver Reed wanted to stage another wrestling match uh, <laughs> like the one in Women in Love, but Robert Mitchum said, no way, sir. I'm all male. I'm all man. That's right. That's right. Sure. Yeah. Um, so... Anyways, we're continuing now with the Criterion uh, collection where they're the channels, uh, 26 movies, including a few augments here and there. But uh, we're going to get through the 70s and then into the 80s this episode. Absolutely. Uh, the next film, I really don't think we have much to say. It's a weird that they included it in their Neo-Noir series. My guess is they still have the rights for it because they've had it for other different series before. But The Eyes of Laura Mars, um, 1978. Uh it's Faye Dunaway, and it's Tommy Lee Jones, and mm-hmm. basically Aubergeonois and Brad Dourif. Brad Dourif, yes, and uh, some uh, very kind of uh, not really cool portrayals of homosexual men in some weird fashion shoots. Uh, some pretty yes. bad acting from Faye Dunaway, and some oh what I'm so shocked at the ending, not because it was clearly <laughs> coming a mile away. Uh, <laughs> So this is just a weird movie, right? Yeah. I mean, so written by John Carpenter. I mean, everything about it is a little bit weird. A lot of the elements, as you said, the cast is is kind of interesting. Directed by the guy who did Empire Strikes Back. Irvin Kirshner, who was, you know, longtime, uh, you know, teacher at USC, I believe. And famously, the the score, or rather the the, uh, song um, that Barbara Streisand sang from, the love theme from Laura Mars. Um, produced by, I think, uh, her boyfriend at the time, her partner, John Peters. John Peters. Yes. 
Yes, 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 yes. See, I think you're already saying more about this movie than I thought we were going to talk about. Well, no, no, that's, that's, uh, listen, I'm not going to tell a, a story about uh, polar bears or uh, giant mechanical spiders or anything. Okay. You know? Well, look, Eyes of Mars, it's there. I'm not even sure what you would double this one with. I, I just, they've included it. It's probably one of my, I, I would certainly recommend watching The Big Sleep over Eyes of Mars just because The Big Sleep is way more fun, though there's a couple of hilarious moments in Lara Mars too, but uh, I just think it's a terrible movie. Not a huge fan. You know, it's it's really, it just feels it has like it hasn't aged particularly well. And no. I, I, I'd almost kind of pair it with, uh, again, there were, there were a couple of movies like I think Lipstick you know, kind of in the late 70s, early 80s, where there was this kind of um, idea about uh, fashion photography as somehow being, um, you know, kind of, I, I guess, something of a, a feminist argument about um, uh, how, you know, fashion photography tend to uh, promote sexualization and of, of, and kind of uh, violence towards women. There you go. Hey, guess what? We're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> We're moving on because this is just, yeah. we have so many movies to get through, so many better yep, ones. Yep, yep, uh, yep. The next one, it. I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time on this one either, is 1979's The Onion Field. And this is sort of a new watch for me because I remember when it had first premiered on TV in the early 80s. And I don't know what I was doing, but I ended up sitting down and watching a chunk of it with my dad. And the, I caught the, the onion field murder scene. And it was so disturbing to me that it just left an impression and I just uh, uneasy feeling as a kid. And I remember oh, yeah. the, I, like it's the first time I really got to look at James Woods and I always thought of his character from the onion field. And so when I saw him, I think um, in Videodrome, I'm like, oh my God, it's that scary guy from the onion field. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I saw this as a kid on TV um, and it made an impression on me. I remember then renting it subsequently. And also um, I even read the book. Right. You know, and it was something, you know, it really was one of these true crime stories that well, it feels very in cold bloodish, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And Wamba and his whole kind of understanding of uh, LAPD culture is, is kind of interesting. Yeah. And the movie is directed by this guy, Harold Becker, who did another neo noir um, with Al Pacino's Sea of Love. Right. It, it does have, it's funny, it was obviously rated R material, but it's another one of those movies that it feels very television-y. Yes, absolutely. Um, just the way it's shot and lit, and it just feels like, it almost feels like a TV movie they were shooting, and then we realized, oh, it's too violent, and the, the subject matter, we can't put this on TV. Because remember, back in the TV, they didn't have, you know, they weren't making like, you know, premiere shows for cable or any of that stuff. So it, it just feels like kind of flat content that doesn't, doesn't engage you on a cinematic level, I guess. Okay, well, I, I gotta say, I'll push back a little bit in, in the sense that um, there there are a few moments that I, I think I think John Savage's performance actually like is pretty good. Um, I, I remember him and really James Woods are very good in it. Yeah. Yes. And James Woods is really sinister. And also the guy um, who plays the accomplice with him when he breaks down on the stand, yes. I thought was like really I, I think there's actually really, really strong performances and who I actually really like in this, who has like a really great screen presence. And, you know, we'll talk about this. The fact that, like, he didn't do more serious stuff. Ted Danson. Uh, I oh, really yeah, this was Ted Danson's too. first movie. Yeah, and I, I actually, you know, it's such a revelation. You know, again, when you go back and you look and you, you see, this guy has star quality. Ted Danson, right, he got the job on Cheers. And that became a sensation. But it also, it was, you know, a TV sensation. And 
he became so iconic that yes. so when when he did try to make it in the movies after the fact it was almost like oh that's ted danson but yet he did he he did have a major success with three men and a baby mm-hmm. which i think we all forget about but you know him and gutenberg yes. but, uh, but, again, it but, up and, but again it's that with tom like it's, it's that light material you know? yeah, but I mean, he was really, he's really good in the onion field. He's really good in a small supporting role in the next movie we're going to talk about in a minute. And I think maybe there's another reason why Criterion puts these films out. They're pairing up with sometimes actors that were hitting up this genre a little right. bit. Um, right. And so, yeah, so the onion field, it's an interesting film. I don't think of it as a neo-noir myself. I don't really classify it, even though, yes, there are some neo-noir elements. I think it's more of a crime film, and it's mm-hmm. an interesting dissection of kind of how somebody who is a victim of a terrible crime, because they're a police officer, they become re-victimized afterwards where they have to retell the same story. They have to relive the experience over and over and over and over again. Right. And that there wasn't sort of like a recognition that the person was uh, experiencing, uh, you know, post-traumatic PS- stress. Y- yeah. And, and and there was no help for him there. And there was also a lot of blame on like, here, this is a great example of what cops should never do. <laughs> and it became a textbook case of what they right. shouldn't do. And yet when you're in the moment, you're not, you know, you don't know you're going, you're trying to, you're trying to do the right thing. Right. And listen, I, I so I think I do like the movie a bit more than you, but I still think it's worth a, a rewatch, especially for the performances. And I, and I think some of the, the issues that you're talking about are kind of, I mean, it does make for a compelling story. I didn't say I didn't like the movie. I just don't think it's, to me, when I'm looking at neo-noir, I, I like to, I like, you know, there's some movies that are coming out that to me are a lot more interesting as neo-noirs. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. So the next movie is 1981's uh, Body Heat. And I've seen this movie several times. So on the one hand, it's sort of like, oh, I could skip it. But for some reason, I just happened to watch it. I watched it with my uh, oldest son. And what's interesting is he has no knowledge of noir. And he doesn't know double indemnity, which this is a very close cousin of. And it's funny, as I think I saw Body Heat before I saw bo- uh, double indemnity. So I was kind of actually surprised when I was watching double indemnity that it was like, oh, my God, that's pretty much <laughs> body, body Heat. But my son's watching this movie. And then, of course, when the murder plot comes in, mm-hmm. right, he looks at me, he goes, boy, this movie took a turn. <laughs> and I thought that was funny because he didn't recognize what was going to happen in this movie because he right. was caught up in it in a different, like Body Heat doesn't, you know, he doesn't have any frame of reference to know the history of this movie. Um, it's Lauren Kasdan's film. And it's sort of a reimagining in a way of double indemnity, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, this is textbook neo-noir. You know, and this that, is absolutely, this is where you take, unlike uh, unlike The Big Sleep and Farewell, My Lovely, here you take a noir story that's right out of the pages of the early 40s and was actually done. But how do you how do you uh, infuse 1980s, you know, present day blood into it? Right. Absolutely. I, the one thing I would say is the music is slightly retro, feels a little bit. That's the one thing that feels a little bit retro in it. But, uh, you know, everything, I mean, but that's that's just one element. Well, that was a callback, I think. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, it's yeah, done yeah, by the, yeah. uh, you know, the guy who did the, the James Bond movies and stuff and John Barry. Right, right. So you don't like the music. No, no, is no, I do, saying? I do, I do, I do. But it's, the music is, it just feels a little too on the, on the nose. That's all. Um, well, okay, so that's the whole thing, right? It's, again, 
it was fascinating to watch. This was my son who doesn't pick out this, but this was clearly saying, hey, we're a noir. Right. Um, and it's interesting is it set in like, you know, Florida, which mm-hmm. is, and now we look, it's like, it's like, oh, Florida's always been seedy. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's always been filled of, uh, you know, creepy characters and Lotharios and stuff. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is that uh, uh, William Hurt, Hurt is fantastic. Someone made a comment that said, like, you know, Hurt, you always kind of think of him in some of his roles as a very intelligent guy. Right. But here he plays a guy. He's not very intelligent. He's a big dummy. He's a dummy. And he's, like, not not necessarily unlike the dummy he is in uh, broadcast news. Right. He's a good-looking face. Wears a mustache well. Yes, he does. <laughs> uh, but he's really a, he's a creepy lawyer, and he's shady, and he's and he basically skirts within the lines of ethical, and you know, and also he he doesn't hit you know he he's not at the top of his uh, law class, I imagine. Graduating, yeah. So he's in, so he's an easy mark. And, you know, watching this back again, you know, I find it a fun movie because, um, you know, yes. it hits all the beats. And I remember the first time I watched the film, I was too young to see it in 1981, but I caught it at a retro screening, uh, a revival screening at the Somerville in the mid 80s mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of other movies. And being several years out and being at an age where I can appreciate the movie, I didn't know what the movie actually was about. I thought it was like some super sex film, right? With pretty Catherine much, Turner pretty much. Something. That's how it was hyped. I mean, it yeah. really was. And there were a few sexy, but you know, pretty mild, I think, by today's standards. But I didn't know about the murder. I knew nothing. Okay. And so I was really enjoyed and I was surprised because again, I had not seen Double Indemnity. I had not seen a lot of these movies. So I really, I, I hook, line and sinker. I loved everything. You watch right. it now. Okay. And I think that Kathleen Turner, though she has a great sultry performance, yes. one of her first acting roles and her acting, I think she, I think she tips her, her hand throughout the entire movie, mm-hmm. which is problematic for me now. Cause I'm like, how could he not see he's being played? Right. I mean, it's it's that whole kind of, if you will, going back to noir, like Mary Astor, that kind of breathiness, you know, in uh, in, in the perform that, um, you know, that that kind of seems like a kind of fake innocence. Yeah. But I thought it was a good uh, directorial debut for Lawrence Kasdan. Yeah, I look, I, I saw it and I actually had a probably a greater appreciation for it just because of the transfer. And what I remember is when I was a, a kid, I saw it first on VHS and it was well that's another thing if you haven't seen some of these movies and you're seeing them for the first time nice prints widescreen that also makes a difference absolutely so you never saw it in the theater before i never did i never did and so i really did enjoy it very much so you know and uh, i it's I, I would recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it oh absolutely i mean it's a, to me it's a it's like a, a neo noir staple you got to see it yes. um so so certainly i understand why that movie was in there now uh, this is a film. Next one, 1981 again. So it's funny. 81, um, we've got uh, a lot of neo noirs happening, um, and sort of a leftover from the conspiracy uh, days. We have Blowout, 1981, and, and De Palma. And I haven't gotten a chance to rewatch it in this uh, particular series. I did. I did. But my, I didn't. You know, it was 1981, right? So I'm 11 years old. And and almost eleven when like this movie came out because uh, my birthday's in in the summer and this came out in like I think the the, the winter time and right. so I couldn't see it and it was not a hit and it's a movie that took years to get its reputation and we're going back now like I don't know twelve years or so it came out on Criterion um, Blu-ray and I bought a copy just because I'd heard so many great things about it and I watched it and I thought okay it's all right. 
you know? And then as part of the De Palma series that Teal and I took on at the very beginning of the year, I rewatched it. We didn't get to talk about it. This is so funny is that I was, I was still hooked on seeing all these De Palma movies, even though we'd sort of finished our episodes out. Mm-hmm. And so I watched this film and then I realized it was almost like I'd saved the best for last because to me, watching it a second time when you've gone through the movie once and you've been immersed in De Palma, you just see the guy pulling out all the stops and doing some great things cinematically and putting it all together. And it's a really entertaining uh, movie, I think. Yes, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's uh, very successful in uh, a number of ways. Great entertainment. Um, you know, and, uh, I really think all the elements, you know, it's, it's very funny that, uh, De Palma, you can see is taking from other movies that he loves and he's taking from, as you guys were talking about this, you know, aspects of his personal life and the whole idea about surveillance and everything and how he kind of fits it all together is really, really well done. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's, again, it's one of these leftover critiques about government conspiracies. It has- John Lithgow as like G. Gordon Liddy. Yes. Uh, John Lithgow's favorite bad guy, which is so funny that John Lithgow made a career of being uh, good guys, except for in De Palma movies. And he's super, super <laughs> creepy because he's not just Gordon Liddy in this. He's kind of a serial killer yes. um, as well. It's a take on- Another neo-noir that's not included in the series, one of my favorite movies of all time, is The Conversation. So it's it's sort of uh, like The Conversation. It's also a lot like Blow Up, um, mm -hmm. a neo-noir from the 60s. And it's the everyman, the regular man, guy whose job it is, is to record sounds. He inadvertently hears what could be part of a conspiracy. Yes. And as you were talking about the, the way that this ordinary guy is forced to become a detective – and yes. he is like, and he is like a detective in other noir films in the sense that he has a past and something right. went wrong and where he tried to do something right and, you know, everything, you know, fell apart. And so he's sort of dealing with the, with the ghost from his own past. But he also can use his skills as this sound guy. Like, so he uses what he does well mm -hmm. in order. So his expertise helps him try to solve this crime. Right. And then what does he do? This is another thing that happens in neo-noirs. I mean, again, we're, we're moving way past noir. I'm sure it happens in noirs too. But in neo-noirs is they enlist the help of somebody, like usually like they're paired up with some sort of damsel yes. uh, who she has a shady cat, right? So she's like a prostitute with a heart of gold, of course. <laughs> that That's always the way. Um, and it's, of course, De Palma's wife at the time. Nancy, uh, Allen. Nancy Allen, who, again, I think I mentioned this with like Teal. I always had, had a thing for Nancy Allen uh, yes. as a kid. I, I mean, I just, I, something about her. She was just gorgeous and uh, she's just awesome. And, and also, she's kind of an interesting actress. I always liked her performances and there is something very appealing about her. She was used as the setup person for what turns out to be this crime, but then she also doesn't like that she's been set up in a way and used as right. a dupe. So she also wants to help John Travolta in a weird way after she's kind of screws him over because she thinks he's crazy, right? And right. so he gets into more trouble because of her, but then she tries to help him. Right, right. That's well said. Uh, yeah, and, but then and also, of course, in true neo-noir fashion, the best neo-noirs is the ending of the movie is a real gut punch, the kind of ending that studios hate and that even audiences hate. But then years later, 
after you've rewatched it a bunch of times, you just appreciate the hell out of it. De Palma does not go for the easy, happy ending in this movie. Right, right. And that's the, the thing, again, about noir. It tends to be the downbeat ending and the idea that, um, uh, you know, the, the kind of corruption that pervades society is going to stay there. Nothing's really going to change. And the people who, you know, uh, are innocent, they get uh, kind of trampled on or pushed aside. And of course, again, De Palma, who never likes simple shots, he pulls out, I mean, every awesome cinematic trick and new way to shoot a scene is in this movie Blowout. And of course, it was shot by Vilma Sigmund, again, one of the best. And then, of course, the insane, insane climax to the movie. Right. Had to be completely reshot and Vilmos wasn't available. They had to have the second unit person shoot it because somebody in Philadelphia got into the car with the negatives and stole, <laughs> stole the you movie. You're kidding me. No. So the entire ending, they'd shot all this money and uh, and all the film was shot and uh, it was stolen and it had to be reshot. Wow. That's, I had no idea. Yep. That's bananas. Yeah. So that crazy chase scene <laughs> at the end, that all had right. to be reshot. Yep. Wow. Um, and then there's that awesome scene. I mean, again, with, with the end where like the, the fireworks are going overhead and mm-hmm. it's so amazing. And he's trying to find her and yeah. Oh, and then of course, you know, then we have a great tie in with the sound effects at the end of the movie. Yes. Yep. The whole thing that he's looking for the entire, the entire film, like how it opens. Yeah. So it's a really great, great movie. And again, it took me two, two attempts before I really appreciated it. And now I actually think it's De Palma's best movie. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, if you haven't seen Blowout there, right there, this is one of the reasons why you want to check these films out on the Criterion series. It's so fantastic. Now, this is a movie, and I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts. I, I already mentioned this uh, a couple episodes ago when With uh, I was talking to Teal, is that one of the first films I sat to watch in the series was a 1981, another 1981 film, uh, Cutter's Way. Mm-hmm. And... I just, it's a a movie that is not super intense. There's really no action. It's kind of a hangout movie. But in the way I really like neo-noirs, it has more on its mind than just solving a crime kind of thing. Right. I am a very big fan of this film. I had been for a very long time. I owned a crappy VHS copy of it for a very long time. Yeah, and you used to wear your hair like John Hurd in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of like, I think you used to walk around with a limp pretending you were cut. I couldn't understand why you were wearing the eye patch when I lived with you. (laughs) So Cutter's Way is, I mean, first of all, a couple of the elements. The the, um, uh, director, Ivan Passer, you know, is a, a Czech emigre. He had directed really um, only a couple of other things. He did this movie, uh, Born to Win, with George Siegel and yes. about junkies with Robert De Niro as a cop that I actually, um, I found a copy of that that I, I, I liked. It was interesting anyways. It was like a Siegel performance that actually I, I really enjoyed. And so him, the photography is by Jordan Cronwith. Uh, and yes. is really, really, um, what I like about this is, you know, you really have, um, it does have the feel of a noir, you know, in terms of like the shadows, at least the shadows work better here than whereas seeing it on VHS, it was all kind of like a blur. Uh, that's interesting too. You got to know and love this movie with your VHS copy and then you get to see an actual good print of it. And it's a surprising, you know? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so basically you have these these two friends that you discussed a little bit before. Well, it's a California noir, right? right. Not not in LA because it takes place up in up north a little bit in Santa Barbara. Right. 
But that's another thing about the 80s, right? So the 80s movies, by and large, they were well, like they're really good noir. They're all well, well lit and cool, but there's also a seediness sometimes hidden amongst the sunshine. In back alleys, that's right. I, there's a great um, book, I don't know if you ever read it, called um, City of Quartz, about the history of Los Angeles. And no. they talk about, yeah, they talk about um, sunshine and noir as one chapter, like which is like, which LA Confidential kind of picks up a little bit this idea on the one hand, you know, everyone was sort of um, being drawn to California, you know, for all the sunshine and great, but also the idea that there was this kind of seedy underbelly. And it talks about a lot of the stuff in Chinatown and everything, the history behind that. It's, it's an interesting read. But um, the thing is, uh, so these two friends, uh, Cutter and Bone, okay? Um, yes. Which is why they actually changed that title because they felt that... Uh, it was not going to be a good title for a movie or something. No, and it's not. It's terrible. Um, and so Cutter is um, played by John Hurd. And I'm going to say John Hurd usually makes it in, in performances. You know, he usually is the guy who's like the serious professional or he's, you know, he's um, like Deborah Winger's supervisor in like uh, Betrayed uh, <laughs> and um, things like that, where he's always kind of like, you know, uh, a little bit low key here. He gets to give a performance that is like super over the top as this disabled Vietnam vet. And basically, Jeff Bridges is this kind of cleaned up hippie, this hippie who just like, you can't really call him a hippie, but all he really wants to do is party and get laid is, is basically what he does. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Time out, time out. You, 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 I don't want to say you're not explaining this well, but you're missing a few key elements. First of all, there's a third man in this. There's a third friend played by, I think, Arthur Rosenberg. Mm -hmm. He's their pal, George Swanson. And really, if you have to, this is why this movie doesn't just lay things out in the line. You have to get it. There's a relationship. There's these three men and they were clearly buddies in high school. Yes. And they all grew up in this wealthy, wealthy community in Santa Barbara, right? But they all took different paths. Right. And the the one friend who's not like the main part of the story, but he's, he, he, he's made it big for himself, I guess, you know, he's like right. real estate and whatnots. And he's gone to work for the super rich oil guy. Yes. And yeah. Yes, who's Ford. maybe connected, who's maybe connected to a murder, but he's, he's the sort of avenue in to that guy. And he right. wants to be part of that world, right. In that player world. And he clearly like had, you know, he used his money not to go to Vietnam, his right. parents influence. Then you have John Hurd, who's also from a wealthy family and they've pretty much cut him off and he went to Vietnam and he came back half a person. Yes. Right. Yes. He lost his eye, he lost his leg. I'm also, I'm assuming that, see, this is why I like a movie like this, that, that does not go and spell things out for you, but it is fairly clear that because you don't know at first that the, this house there's this thing where Jeff Bridges is always hanging out with John Hurd and he's hanging out with this woman uh, right. this icorn and that's actually John Hurd's wife in the film and what it never really says but it's kind of clear is that John Hurd's character is probably impotent yes absolutely yeah yep. it's yep. probably in the book but he, he can't have sex with his wife anymore and yet she out of sense of duty or the fact that she really deep down still loves uh, Cutter she doesn't leave him, though she's kind of in love with Jeff Bridges' character. And Jeff Bridges wants her. But he has no ambition, so he's kind of a bum, right? In a sense, yes. he's a rich bum. He has money because his family has money, and he hasn't screwed his life up like John Hurd, but he also hasn't succeeded like his friend who wants him to come and work for him. Like, he wants him to right. kind of work as a boat salesman. 
Yeah, like you like finally put your charm to to use because he's a like you know he's a Lothario and th- it, this it opens with him and, and Nina Van Palant, you know, yes. the wife from uh, the Long Goodbye. Yes. yes, yeah, that he's just gone to bed with her, and you know he thought that he was going to try to sell her a yacht, and you know um, there's there's just a very kind of interesting scene where he just wants to like leave and he ends up asking her for like cash he kind of hustles her a little bit so he's he's a little, little yeah yeah and that's another thing this is the, this is sort of the start of jeff bridges in the 80s doing these interesting sort of role every guy sort of playboy not like you know like an interesting character who gets involved in these plots right so this is not his first uh neo-noir rodeo in right. the 80s right so I think that's kind of a fascinating thing. At the beginning of the movie, uh, Jeff Bridges witnesses something uh, that could be a murder. And that kind of kicks off the sort of plot device of, uh, you know, this guy trying to unravel a, m- a murder. But the different twist here is that Jeff Bridges, regardless of what he saw, wants nothing to do with it. But his friend, John Hurd, and partly in this his resentment of the man, right, the rich, yes. wealthy, he wants to pursue this murder case. He wants to to unravel this mystery. He's got it in that he thinks that this, this super wealthy, wealthy guy core is behind yeah, it. Yes. Is behind it. And of course, this will un- be the undoing of right all things by keep uh, going on this route and actually the sister of the woman who played by Anne Dusenberry. That actress, she was like in Jaws 2 and stuff. Uh, I don't know where, whatever happened to her, but uh, I used to like watching her in movies. Um, she just suddenly starts hanging out with him. I thought that's fascinating. Yes. Um, and then, so the ambiguity is, is that I think the end of the movie, which does end rather abruptly, I think you are left with, you know, I think it's pretty, you can certainly walk away feeling like you've solved the mystery. Yes, oh, 100%, 100%. And Jeff Bridges' character, who the entire the entire time is like sort of passive you know he finally has to take a stand you know or makes a decision to do something you know and but even it, though it technically do we we don't know 100% for certain whether or not i think it's fairly certain eh, i think it, so I think, but, I think it's fairly certain that the guy sees him but i i but really wait wait wait, enjoy- wait but here's the thing is so here when we talk about ambiguity just like with uh, night moves there is a death that happens late in the film. And I think that the ambiguity is whether or not this character was murdered to shut people up or did this character commit suicide? I think, again, it has that sort of 1970s, 1960s, 1970s mentality where there are no accidents. There are no mistakes. There, you know, nobody just dies of a heart attack. It's all connected, man. See, I and I think that the person may have committed suicide. They, you know, they had, they did their thing, which is funny when you talk about this movie, I just want to tell about all the plot points, but at the same time, I think this is a movie people might discover. So I don't want to spoil things, um, but I think it's, I think it's a fantastic movie in a, in a lot of ways. It is. It is a couple of things. I mean, heard you can see is gives a delicious performance that's like delicious yeah it's over the top it's hilarious like and there's this great scene where he talks like you know um he talks his way out of uh um getting arrested by the cops that's hilarious oh that's the best that is the best (laughs) well that's the thing so his character right you know he is over the top but 
it's within the character. The character is out of control, and he pl- he doesn't. It's not hammy. It's really a well done performance. I think. Yes. And I think and, that and the, well, the movie was like in between studios. Like it was inherited it was by a studio that was having problems. Yeah, like, and yeah, so yeah. it kind of it kind of got a crappy release. It didn't get like some. It got it, it initially got some bad like notices, and then suddenly it got good notices, and it, it kind of escaped. And I think I knew about it because I was in Massachusetts where there's a big film market and so it played for weeks like in Boston theaters it, it right. never really had much of a you know a big multiplex release but I've known about the movie for years yet it was many years where I didn't even know what the movie was about I just saw the guy with the eye patch on the uh, poster and I didn't even know that Jeff Bridges was in the movie so that's right and I gotta tell you so I the film I think is an influence on the big Lebowski and I think John Heard's character. Way? I think absolutely. I think John Heard is, and the fact that like Bridges is in both films, but I think the um, Walter Sobchak is in some ways the cinematic child of uh, John Heard's Cutter, and like the speech that he gives, like I did not watch my buddy's face die face down in the muck. <laughs> oh, you so think that? that? <laughs> no, these, these, well, you'd have to check with the Coen brothers to know what they were thinking. I mean, obviously, it's super influenced by Raymond Chandler. And yes. it, it and if you think about it, if you could just like like Lebowski is kind of like uh, a stoner, you know, uh, Philip Marlowe, um, right? And it definitely has a lot in common with the long goodbye in many ways, uh, but it also has in the absurdity of the plot of the big sleep. Yes, yes. But I just you know, well, I, I don't see any connection to Vietnam. Well, not a literal connection. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so. So oh, and then, can I just say one more oh, thing about the film? Also, that's great. Yeah, you can sorry, say, you Billy. You can say as much you want. To, as long as you understand that the more you say, the more episodes you're going to have to do with me that's on like, the that's noir. That's that's, that's the devil's bargain. Also, soundtrack by Jack Nietzsche, and it's kind of an interesting score. And who also did the soundtrack for uh, the Hot Spot as well. Oh, 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 you're you're jumping the lead a little yeah, bit I on know, that. I but, know, uh, I know. Just um, wanted to mention that. Okay. So now it's going to be tough. I realize now with all that we want to say and that there are so many neo-noirs to include, I can't, we can't spend tons of time on movies that weren't on the Criterion list, but I'm just going to talk about some other films in between because it's funny is that they all come out around the same year. So I think it's very fascinating. And, the, and in 1981, so we had Body Heat, we had Blowout, we had Cutter's Way, but then we also had probably the most neo-noir of them all was Michael Mann's Thief. Yes. And that's a film. Another one. Again, I'd I'd go to the movies with my dad, and sometimes he'd take me to like a horror movie or something in '81. And I remember you'd see I'd see trailers for all these great movies. Like I'd see like trailers for Blowout. I would see trailers for Thief. I saw trailers for Excalibur. And they're all rated R, and I'm like, I want to see all of these movies, and and I couldn't because it it really unless it appealed to my dad, I couldn't go. You know, and I had no VCR. I had no cable back then. So, like, these are movies that I caught up with years later. And Thief is another one in the great tradition of neo-noirs that you got to see a bunch of times before you appreciate the hell out of it. Right. And I think I've mentioned this before, but, like, to me, what makes a great uh, movie is when you have a realistic villain that is so friendly and cuddly and then is so evil. And Robert Prosky who was this guy that I don't know how he suddenly became an actor at the late age that he was. This was like his first role. He plays the head mobster in this movie thief. And he is so freaking scary. 
in this yes. movie. Yeah, well, that, that one monologue that he delivers. Oh, so great. You know, where uh, before um, Jim Belushi uh, disappears. Yes, oh, poor, yeah, yeah. Jim Belushi's in the movie, too. He's really good. He is good. Um, and James Caan uh, is really good in the film. Tuesday Weld yes. is really good. Yes. And uh, again, it's even William, Even William Peterson as a bartender. Peterson, now he's funny you mentioned him. He's going to come into play in yes, uh, yes, the yes, next, yes. Uh, which I think I think we're probably, well, I don't know where we're going to get to, but we're probably in part uh, four. We're going to probably get into Peterson uh, more. But uh, okay, so now 1984. 1984, uh, Criterion offers us two films, but I'm also going to throw in just two more. One we're going to talk about a little bit and maybe uh, we'll see how far we get. But then the other one I'm just going to mention that because of the Jeff Bridges factor, I tracked down and watched, uh, hadn't seen it in like, uh, you know, since it was first on cable where they used to show it on HBO all the time, Against All Odds. Yes. And this movie is neo-noir. Absolutely. Pretty terrible. Uh, It starts off pretty good, actually, I think. Well, it's a remake. It's a remake of a classic noir out of the past with Mitchum. Jeff Bridges plays the Mitchum part and uh, Kirk Douglas uh, is um, Kirk Douglas? <laughs> he, what is he plays the um, the role of uh, Jimmy Woods, James Woods. J- James Woods, another James Woods. That's another reason why I mentioned it. It's like, hmm, here's another noir. It's got James Woods in it, and it's got Jeff Bridges. Jeff, Jeff Bridges. Bridges playing again. He's playing like you know a football star whose career is over, being forced out, and then much like night moves. Then there's all this plot that is going on. Yeah, against all odds, uh, most notable for the song. I prefer though. I'm a. I'm kind of a purist. I really like the N ranking version. Of, yeah. It's, uh, so I mean, Bill's making this joke where it's very notorious. One of the most notorious moments of Academy Award history was that '84. Uh, all of these great songs were nominated. Well, I don't know if the word "great," but like the big, big, big names were nominated for best uh, song. Uh, you had Footloose. You had. Uh, also from Footloose, you had Let's Hear It for the Boy. You had Ghostbusters, which was like a huge smash, right? I mean, that song was everywhere, even though it's a silly song. Then you had uh, Against All Odds, the Phil which Collins was, song. Which, by the way, the video was like a trailer for the movie and was on all the time. That's the thing is you wanted to see this movie Against All Odds because I saw all the great scenes were in the video that you used to see. And then you had Phil Collins in between. <laughs> And that was actually the same with all of them, Neon right? Phil so, Collins. Right. So for like Footloose, right? That was a trailer for the movie. Movie as well, And yes. just hear it for the boy. That was more trailer for the movie. And Ghostbusters, of course. Yes. Trailer for the movie. Yes. And then, I guess in a way also a trailer for the movie, it was a terrible song, is uh, that uh, Stevie Wonder song, I Just Called to Say I Love You from <laughs> Women in Red. I mean, that was, that's, that's a terrible song, right? Am I wrong? <laughs> It's a terrible song. I like Stevie Stevie in general. So here's the insult, right? So at the Academy, Stevie Wonder allowed to play his song. Ray Parker Jr. is allowed to do some crazy uh, Ghostbusters version of the song, but they would not let Phil Collins play and perform against all odds. He he thought he was going to get a chance. He had actually canceled some tour dates and he he, he wanted to go to a word summary. Everybody thought that that was the song that was going to win. They wouldn't let him perform. He he was shocked. (laughs) And so... The Anne Ranking, the dancer. Who just recently passed. She just recently passed. Yes. They did a dance number for that song. It was terrible. And she sang the song horribly. And then in portions of it was lip syncing while she was dancing. And apparently, and this is why the the TV really failed. Normally, you should cut to Phil Collins. That would be like the ultimate. You cut to Phil Collins' reaction. Supposedly, his face was so angry and livid and they wouldn't cut to him. And then, of course, on top of all that insult, he loses to 
uh, I just called to say I love you from the woman in red, which he says like he was like that clearly was a song that was not written for the movie and they just stuck it in there. Like he was so pissed. He was so, and then he said some other not so choice things that I don't know. Today's age would haunt him for his days, but he, he didn't have some kind words for why he thought that the Academy voted for that song. <laughs> Oof. Oof. Yeah. Well, uh, but anyways, that movie is not available on Criterion's uh, neo-noir list, but I did watch it. But what is, and I don't know how much we're going to say on this, because I feel like it, so much has been said about 1984, Coen Brothers. They are big neo-noir fans. And yes. right from their first debut movie, Blood Simple, total neo-noir. Absolutely. And um, the title itself taken from Dashiell, a Dashiell Hammett novel, Red Harvest. Look at you. And, um, you know, if you watch, I mean, it really is kind of em- embryonic um, Coen Brothers. But I, I just, if you read enough Hammett, you can see the way that it really did influence them. And particularly in Miller's Crossing, which is kind of a, a mashup of The Glass Key by Hammett and uh, Red Harvest. I, I you know, hadn't seen it in ages. And I, again, had a very crappy old VHS copy of it ages ago. <laughs> and, you know, I, I enjoyed rewatching it again on this. It's a little, it moves a little slow in the beginning, mm. but um, I think it's... Um, then it picks up steam. and Oh, and boy, it does. Throttle, it yeah. really does. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. Yeah, I've wa- I haven't rewatched this part of this, but I've seen it recently. Um, and I also watched it with commentary from the Coen brothers. It's fascinating that they were doing like a live uh, thing where they were watching it and then recording it like there was like an audience and they would pause and stop it. And they were pointing out all these bad shots and things they would never do today and, right. and stuff that people love. But they were like, they were making it up. They didn't know. But they but by because they didn't know, sometimes you create some iconic things. Um, and it also shows you how much when you're watching a film and absorbing, you miss mistakes. But I mean, again, you can't get more different uh, than Against All Odds than Blood Simple, right? And they're right. both the same year. That's what I find fascinating when you get things uh, the same year, but they're completely different. And another one, which I have not rewatched, and I don't know why, because it's really good. I just haven't had time, I guess, is 1984's Stephen Frears, who's oh, no stranger to Nino Noir himself, uh, The Hit. I think it's a great film i if you uh, haven't seen really, it, this is listeners you gotta see this movie the hit john hurt as a hitman with tim roth going to get um terrence stamp who is somebody he's like a super grass he's somebody who ratted out all the mobsters and he's hiding out in spain and um they come to kidnap him to bring him back they're going to bring him to france so that the crime bosses can you know uh torture him to death and it's just really, really, really well done, beautifully shot. You know, the, the script is, is really, you know, very strong. I'm uh, just a very big fan of the film. I know, you know, people who know it love it. I just wish that, you know, it was uh, even better known. Yeah, it's hard to almost talk about why it's so great, but uh, Terrence Stamp's character is so fascinating and yes. you really like him. And of course, that's what happens is the gangsters, as much as they try to resist, they, in this voyage, they like him too, especially Tim Ross' character, who's a guy yes. who Terrence Stamp kind of recognizes really has no business being there. And he really would, if he could reach somebody, like if he knows, he, he may think uh, it's no matter what happens, that's it for me. I've, I make peace with myself. I'm, I'm probably not going to make it out alive. Which is such an interesting thing because that, you know, he's still managing to get under Tim Roth's skin. Oh, yeah. Well, you think he thinks it maybe, like I said, maybe it's over for him, but maybe he can do something to change this guy's future. Right. And it's first time, I think, for a lot of people would ever really get a taste of Tim Roth. 
And he's amazing in this movie. Yeah, he is. And and also John Hurt as well. And what's so great about John Hurt is the fact that he almost plays it like he's the Terminator. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like he's part machine, you know, even though he's like, he's clearly not. And you can see his humanity underneath, but he's like, you can see just because of his profession and what he does, he's had to become really tough, really cynical, really hard. And yeah, it's a, it's a very good film. Now, have did you get a chance to rewatch this, or is this just from your? Okay. I did. I did rewatch you're, you're, it. You, I gotta tell you, you know, I was so busy watching some other movies that had nothing to do with Criterion's apparently, because uh, you did much better on the list than me. Uh, the, you know, I just, I, I really, uh, I, I enjoyed the film. I, I saw it maybe, I'm not, maybe about a year ago or so. I saw it again, and it just had stayed with me, and I wanted to watch it again. And and some of the beautiful scenery that's that's the, one of the things that's so great is just like the scenery of spain as they're driving through all the way is uh, uh great i i i like films shot in spain in general so it's always okay me. no you know spaghetti westerns and all the, I mean, I mean, all the sure yeah no no it's good it's good and it's also it's interesting because it's not an american neo-noir it's a british neo-noir um and stephen frears for those who are like who's stephen frears uh Stephen Frears also directed The Grifters. Right, which one I'm of sure my we'll talk about. Films, uh, maybe. Uh, in episode 10. Uh, <laughs> stay with us, people. Uh, okay, so now here's another film. And I don't know, you may not have seen this ever, and a rewatch, and it's I tough did. because I really, you do got to see Mike's Murder? I, I saw it a long time ago, but I um, I did not get a chance to find it. I couldn't find okay. it. Okay, so I was able to track down Mike's Murder. It's another film that I always wanted to see. And I found a lot in common with Cutter's Way and Night Moves in this film. Um, and again, it, it focuses on a, a, a character, right, Deborah Winger. And it's it's a strange movie. It has a, a strange backstory. Uh, the director is James Bridges. And mm-hmm. he's he's dead now. But he, he had done things like uh, Urban Cowboy. But he uh, directed The Paper Chase. Right. Um, and he also uh, directed uh, The China Syndrome. Mm-hmm. And Bright Lights, Big City, which not not very good, but uh, right. He uh, he he passed away like in his like early fifties, uh, some kind of cancer, but probably it's not really been disclosed. But it was like a time where you didn't say you died of AIDS when right. you died of AIDS. Um, he was one of the very few uh, film directors who was out at the time. Hmm. Very few filmmakers were ever acknowledged that they were gay because um, it could hurt their career. But he actually was out and had a longtime partner who, you know, as, as far as he could be back then, he was married to this guy in a sense, but he couldn't be married um, right. through the law. Uh, but this guy, James Bridges, he uh, knew Deborah Winger from Urban Cowboy and he wanted to make this film, uh, Mike's Murder. And she, it, it was supposed to be told like memento style. Mm-hmm. Where it was kind of told in reverse. Right. And when they assembled it and put it together, the studio was like, what the hell is this? No. And it had to be re um, reimagined. Uh, there's a murder. I mean, it's called Mike's Murder. So there's a murder at the center of the story. Yeah, Deborah Winger's a bank teller. She's kind of like, yeah, she kind of works for a bank. Drive-thru bank, yes. Yeah. And uh, she, uh, the murder is supposedly so, so violent that the studio made them cut that too. And so as it stands, when you now have it in chronological order, uh, you never see the murder. But I actually think that in the way that this is kind of put together uh, in this chronology, it actually works because it's, there's some mystery there. Uh, and Deborah Winger's character doesn't really know this guy, Mike, very well. Like it's told in sort of chunks. It starts out with uh, this kind of like one night stand and it's very kind of like, 
you know, it seems very touching and romantic. And that's an interesting place to start. Then it gets very gritty. It's one of those films, I kind of call it uh, low tourist look at LA where it doesn't really focus on the landmarks. It focuses on LA as the location, but we're not going to give you all of these locations to make you go, Oh, look, it's LA. Not like, you know, Beverly Hills cop or something where it's like, you know, Beverly Hills and they're going to show you Beverly Hills. So that's fascinating. You see these like real locations, uh, not sets. And it adds this layer of authenticity to the movie and then, you know, over these little vignettes, like, you know, she runs into this guy, Mike, maybe six months later or something. He was her tennis instructor. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get little bits and pieces of who this guy, Mike, is, but not fully. So she's really shocked when he turns up that he's been murdered, right? Right. Um, and so just because she's just so shocked, she inadvertently kind of goes on a detective mission. Mm-hmm. just for answers. She wants to, like, so she's reaching out to anybody that she heard about that knows him or other people. And as you start going down this windy little road of this guy's life, he was a hustler and also a drug dealer. And this one partner he has in all of this real scumbaggy guy, he kind of gets him, you know, they steal from these people um, some cocaine that they shouldn't. And it's, of course, it's caught right away, and that's why he's murdered, and now they're after the other guy. And Deborah Winger doesn't really know any of this stuff, and so she's discovering it along the way. But what she also discovers is not knowing this guy, Mike, at all, and who she thinks might be a prospect for, like, a relationship, is that he was kind of, you know, he was a gay street hustler. Right. He had a sugar daddy. This is what I think the most fascinating part of the movie is, is that she goes to a location that she had seen him come out of uh, like early on in the movie. And it's a record producer guy uh, played by Paul Winfield. Right. And Paul Winfield was uh, in this movie Sounder. And he was also the, the, the police lieutenant. In, in Terminator. Terminator. Uh, and this is something I didn't know. And when I was reading about it afterwards, it makes sense. Is he was also probably closeted at the time, not, not known. He, he was a gay film actor. Mm. And he plays this role of a gay record producer who this guy, Mike, was kind of, uh, you know, he was taking care of Mike for a while. Right. And there's this very amazing sequence that he's revealing all of this stuff to Deborah Winger. And it really says a lot about what was going on in L.A. and the industry at the time and drugs and all of these things. And it's kind of handled in a way that movies didn't handle that kind of subject matter. And I think a lot of that is a tribute to James Bridges living in Hollywood as a filmmaker and kind of understanding what the you don't talk about gay society is. At right. the time, right? It's all kind of you know kept under wraps, mm-hmm. and th- these are just fascinating elements to this movie. Um, everything about this movie, I dug for thirty six years. I wanted to see this movie, and I saw it. If you can find it, it's really good, and I would love it if like Criterion could offer it up. I think it's. I just out of all the movies, this one really fits in with what Criterion's doing, mm-hmm. and it's that very low key. Uh, neo-noir like a cutter's way and a night moves that just i don't know it's the kind of thing i just dig on yeah i remember i remember seeing it when i was very young because uh i knew somebody who knew the guy um who plays mike you know he was the only other film that he really was in was in sudden impact he's the small town cop who like oh. helps out <laughs> who helps out Go ahead. Make my day. 
And um, so it was on my radar for that reason. And uh, so I remember seeing it and, and I, you know, I just remember even reading a review for it in Time magazine. And it was a very favorable review. It was Richard Corliss. And he was saying that basically he in the review, he was like, I'm sure this movie is going to bomb. But this is a movie <laughs> that people will come back and appreciate over time. Well, so that was the thing is it was a, a movie that was on the shelf, wasn't even going to be released kind of thing. And then suddenly Terms of Endearment hit. And it was mm-hmm. like, how do we capitalize quickly? And it got released like in February of uh, 84. And, you know, Terms of Endearment was still a big hit in theaters at the time. So, it, and, it, and it bombed, of course. Uh, but that was why it even got released. And, uh, you know, it's not a movie I think that's caught on. There are some funny things about it just from an, a, a kind of like 80s point of view. Like it's definitely a capsule of what 84 looked like and you know deborah wing a lot of it has to do with her um answering machine in this movie and it's like you know this thing that could like you know you could crush someone's skull with this answering machine (laughs) it's so big um and i just you know those things are fascinating too i uh, that's what i like about these neo-noirs the fact that they're not all shot on sets what it does when you watch them is you kind of see what things look like in the 70s yeah Absolutely. I mean, there's like, I don't know whether it's like uh, killing of a Chinese bookie. I think there's a scene where, because it's LA, you see like a poster, like a bus stop poster for Jaws and, you know, it's stuff like that. I think it's kind of neat. So those are things that I like. Again, I, I, I love to see films that kind of create a capsule of a slice of life, like what was a moment. I mean, some of these are lower budget. So when you see costumes, sometimes it's costume designed, but... Uh, in these low budget films, sometimes it's what were people wearing? Um, I think that's kind of interesting, fascinating. You mm-hmm. know, where sometimes a movie drives style. So, like uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago, Flashdance, that is a film that caused fashion crave. So, what what went on in the movie influenced uh, society from a from a fashion standpoint. Yes. Then there's other movies that just kind of capture what did things look like. Yes, absolutely. That that's very interesting. Uh, you know, split there. So. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So do we have time for maybe one more movie in this chapter or? Uh, maybe we should wrap it up. I'm okay. Because I, I got to tell you the truth. I haven't seen Trouble in Mind in a long time. Oh, so you're hoping that we can you can squeeze that in? Yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. And like, I, I like Love at Large better. I, I do too. That's another neo-noir. It's more of a comedy neo-noir. But yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, you, so I mean, not, you don't have to say, I mean, I, don't, I probably wouldn't talk well, about do you, that I, Well, do you, do you want to we'll talk do about it. Trouble we'll in Mind? We'll, we'll do it. We'll do it. Let's do All it. Right. So quickly. So meanwhile, though, when we talk about weird style and kind of capitalize, <laughs> capitalizing on all the weird stuff of the 80s, uh, a very weird filmmaker is uh, Alan Rudolph, and he was a protege of Robert Altman, who did a lot of second unit stuff for uh, Robert Altman. And first AD, too. First AD, and he uh, was also um, the son of Oscar Rudolph, who did a lot of TV directing. Alan Rudolph, I think, also got to uh, direct an episode or two of The Brady Bunch when he was starting out. Um, He, in the 80s, kind of has his own weird style, does tons of bizarre movies. He's kind of like a second-tier Altman because he kind of does these Altman-esque things and they don't always work out. And I don't know. He's just got his own vibe. He's very unique. I don't, I mean, it is definitely a neo-noir, but I, I, I just, I never lumped it in that category. Is 1985's Trouble in Mind. And I had seen, I know it was on. I watched some of it when I was living with 
back in college, but I didn't really remember it to any degree. So uh, it was one of the first films that I was interested in watching uh, as part of this. And one thing that uh, Teal and I always used to joke about is that Alan Rudolph, he likes to create things that are maybe in his own alternate universe. Yes. And so we would joke and call like his city location movies like New Rudolph City <laughs> instead of New Jack City. Uh, and Trouble in Mind, it's shot in Seattle. Uh, right. And Seattle is one of those weird uh, cities that can make it look like where they, where did they shoot this movie? You know, if you're not familiar as much with Seattle. And it does take place in an alternate universe because in this world, there is sort of a paramilitary presence in the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everybody's kind of dressed a little bit more, like a little bit uh, cyberpunkish, and yes. yet that there's also some people like uh, you know Chris Rosofferson. He's this cop who he had killed somebody, but maybe who deserved it. You know, sort of like a badge of honor kind of thing. And he, now he's he just got out of jail, and he kind of is the classic neo noir detectivey guy. I mean, it's a crazy plot. Uh, there's a gangster element to it, which, uh, again, in Neo Noir, the gangster is not going to be this typical gangster because in this movie, it's played by uh, Divine. Right. Uh, that, to me, is very fascinating when Divine gets to, you know, w- w- was it uh, Melvin Milstead or what was his name? Uh, but uh, Divine got to play a-, a man in this. And he was very proud of the fact that he got to play uh, a non-Divine character. Mm-hmm. And he's playing a uh, a gay um, mafia dog right. of some sort, and Louis Blue or something, and uh, Hilly Blue, Hilly Blue, and I love his performance. I actually think if he was better directed, it could have been a, an all time classic performance. But he he's still a little hammy, um, and he could have just scaled it back a little bit. But I think it's fascinating because he's another one of these characters where he's a larger than life character he seems to be fun you're like well how could this guy be really a bad guy but then he gets to show you how dangerous he can be and i always like that you know i haven't seen the i didn't rewatch the film uh i saw it a long time ago because i remember ebert like raving about it ebert loved it yes yeah you know and i remember you know just feeling um was not a a huge fan and i think it's one of these things with alan rudolph where you either kind of buy in and you, um, you know, kind of accept the premise of this whole <laughs> world or you you kind of feel a little iced out. And I, I remember feeling a little iced out. I, I, it's definitely something I want to check out again. It's worth checking out. Um, again, what I, I look at, I'm not expecting you, the listener, to watch all of these 26 movies. So you can pick and choose. And, uh, you know, this is going to end uh, chapter three of our dive into these neo-noirs and thinking we got maybe two more chapters it's going to take i think to finish this out and uh you know because with the 80s and again we get some other movies that have mixed in uh but there's still a lot more left in the 80s and in the 90s and maybe we won't get into all the films from the 2000s that we could include that that criterion didn't include they only got like one movie post uh, 2000 and uh and i think we want to when we get to that we want to spend a lot of time on that so uh you know i'll be good and not uh not go into every every film that we could possibly go into but uh stay tuned for the rest of the 80s in part four and then you know we'll see how far beyond that we get right absolutely and again you know if you're like why how, how many more of these episodes do i have to listen to we're well, gonna have to listen to a lot because teal's away uh you know he's moving and I, you know i don't know I, I, like i said he's he's i think he's gonna be very busy i can't i don't know what the future for the show looks like i just i know that the future for now the near future is going to be bill and me talking about noirs and the rabbit 
and the rabbit. Uh, uh, don't don't you dare touch that rabbit. I would be very <laughs> sad if the rabbit's not in all the episodes. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yes. Cute. All right. Uh, again, stuffweseen.com is the place where you can get all the episodes. Uh, you know, also Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Podbean, and then also uh, feedback at stuffweseen.com if you want to drop us a note. And again, uh, you get your personal concerns about the bunny, you can just send them our way. Okay? <laughs> okay. Bill, I want a photo of this bunny to prove that it's safe because it would be great to put that on the website. All right, fine. I got it for you, all right? <laughs> Take a snap. All right. Uh, till the next time when we can join forces to talk more Neo Noir, this is uh, James and Bill signing off. Bye. Bye-bye.